you're here for the first time, we're so thankful that you've decided to worship with us today. Uh, you know, I was, uh, as, as, a, as a dad of a, a, a newborn, I was extremely thankful for the extra hour of sleep this morning. Amen. Uh, so praise the Lord for that. You know, t- if you're here, again, we're just so thankful you're here today. We're going to uh, see the last judge in the book of Judges. We'll see the life of Samson. Uh, we're going to look at him this week and next week. And then the week before and after Thanksgiving, we're just going to see a total mess in the book of Judges. Um, seeing what happens when God is just totally ignored, uh, leading us to just give thanks for Jesus and the gospel during the Thanksgiving season. And then following Judges, we're going to start a, a new series in the book of Luke titled The Christmas Spirit, seeing, uh, the angel, seeing angels, prophecies, and the Spirit of God, looking at the Christmas story in the the first few chapters of Luke uh, kind of leading up to Christmas. Um, but we look at, <clears throat> as we look at Samson today and next week, um, who's popular, uh, possibly the most popular judge, I think we'll see why Samson uh, makes it often, it makes it into the kids' Bibles and not Jephthah like we saw last week. You know, Samson is a big strong guy with the, the long and flowing hair that kills a lion with his bare hands, eats out of a dead carcass, uh, makes up a compelling riddle to trick everyone, and then time and time again he single-handedly takes uh, down thousands of people by himself. Uh, he does things like uh, catching 300 foxes, tying their tails together, and burning down a field. Um, he also single-handedly uh, kills a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. Uh, and then not to mention the story of Samson, it even comes uh, with a Hollywood romance drama where he falls in love and tragically gets tricked by the girl on the enemy side. She cuts off his hair, thinking she's taking in his power. Uh, his enemies celebrate with a party as they mock Samson. And at the party, Samson ends up taking out 3,000 more people right before he dies. You know, my eight-year-old um, son uh, has this little comic action Bible that animates all the stories of, uh, of the Bible. And it ha- in that Bible, it has three chapters uh, for three other judges. It's got Ahu, Deborah, and Gideon. And it's got four chapters for Samson. Um, you know, if New City, if we had a, a stereotypical men's retreat, we would not shave for months, go camping in the woods, and uh, hunt for food with our ba- bare hands, and we would study the life of Samson. You know, Samson is the often celebrated war hero with superhuman strength that from his birth was set apart from the Lord who uh, regularly had the Lord's power on his side. Um, it's just a literary masterpiece that has captivated God's people for thousands of years. And so, yes, God has set Samson apart, and he had divine strength and power and God used him in mighty ways but yet ironically enough Samson was deeply broken and sinful man that regularly walked in disobedience yes Samson is often celebrated but we'd be missing it if we ended our sermon today well well let's just all be like Samson saying things like Samson was strong and brave so uh, let's all be like Samson and be strong and brave kind of flexing our muscles and grunting as we did it because yes Samson he is a memorable judge he was a great warrior but he's definitely not an honorable judge No, he was reckless and rebellious. He was deceitful uh, and dishonest, and he was a womanizer. But yet, God still used him. It's a bit of this ironic conundrum here, that Samson was set apart by God from birth, and yet he was so sinful and rebellious, and yet a holy God still used him, leading us to our main idea for today. God set apart and used sinful Samson for his purposes. 
And really, when we dig into the life of Samson, we see the grace of God on full display. Although the word grace is never said, uh, is never mentioned, but the character of God from the beginning has always been God is merciful and gracious and, and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to a thousand generations. I mean, God said that about himself hundreds of years before this point back in the Exodus. And here he is with Samson putting that exact truth on display. And so I don't know where you are today, but if you're overwhelmed by your sin and rebellion, I pray that you take heart and listen up uh, because God still can use you in spite of your rebellion. No, he doesn't want to keep you there and he does want to see you grow in maturity, but time and time again, God has shown himself to use those that are broken and messed up for his divine purposes. Like that's been the story of Judges. And so we've seen this kind of this recurring theme in this book where God's people rebel against God. They cry out for God uh, for to help. God raises up a deliverer. God delivers them. They find pa- time of peace uh, just to be followed by more rebellion. This has kind of been the repetitive cycle that we've seen over 12 chapters in Judges. And now as we step into chapter 13, look at the first three verses. Look at verse 1. In chapter 13, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Seems pretty standard for the book. Um, Longest point of rebellion for the people. They're kind of going on this downward spiral, the people are. But then look what it says in verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. And so as as the readers of the book of Judges, we should notice the difference here. For the past 11 chapters, this cycle has been on repeat like a broken record. Thinking of the people of Israel, like, Israel, what is wrong with you? Get it together, right? But here in verse uh, chapter 13, verse 1, it says they did evil of the side of the Lord and then God hands them over and we're kind of nodding our head like, yep, that's, here we go again. And then there's this abrupt change that totally goes against the cycle. Like if Judges was a matching game, uh, this would be the, the, the card that doesn't match. Something in the cycle has been broken because then the narrative, it changes pace and goes into a story of a man and a woman who struggled to have a baby uh, and an angel comes and speaks to them. Again, this is, a, this is different. The cycle has been broken. And what's interesting about the break of this cycle is that we don't see any repentance from God's people. They ba- like we've seen in the past. They've basically can just kind of gotten used to living amongst uh, these other gods and living uh, under their rule. They've basically, all God's people have basically been immunized by it and doesn't affect them anymore. Sin and rebellion have become commonplace uh, and they've kind of just grown like numb to it. But if you remember last week with Jephthah, we saw him uh, chosen as a leader to help God's people and he sought to follow the Lord. But because he was so influenced by the culture, his ability to judge, judge rightly, it was greatly hindered. And so God, he sees their rebellion. And at this point, it's the long, again, it's the longest act of rebellion in the entire book. It's 40 years and they still haven't turned back to the Lord. And so God, because he loves his people, He steps in to intervene, but he does it a little different this time because what does he do? Well, he doesn't raise up a judge that's already been influenced by the world. No, he begins to raise up a judge and have him set apart from birth. And something I want to point out about the Philistines, who uh, we'll see as kind of the enemy over the next uh, two weeks, you know, the the Philistines are a little bit like the New York Yankees of the Old Testament. You know, they just kind of keep rising to power. 
Yeah, they kind of come and go from the top spot from time to time, uh, but just give them time and they'll come right back. Um, in fact, the Philistines uh, that we'll see this week and next week uh, will, are, the, are the same people that the, the, the King David that we see in the book of Samuel often fighting against. Uh, it was actually kind of Goliath. He was a Philistine. Uh, he came from the Philistines. And so here are the Philistines at the top of their game with elite influence and power and wealth ruling over Israel. And then as we just saw in verse 2 and 3, an angel of the Lord came to speak to a woman who's been, uh, who was married, but she couldn't have any kids. She was barren, it says. And the angel promised her that her and her husband, they would have a son, uh, which leads us to our first of two major scenes today. We're going to have two, uh, chapter 13 and chapter 14 are two different scenes. We're going to kind of tie together as one. But the first part, part one, is the miraculous birth that we see in chapter 13. Again, chapter 13 is Samson's birth, and chapter 14 will cover his marriage that we'll get to in the second half. And just to kind of give you an idea of where we're, uh, how we'll use our time, I'm going to ha- this is going to be a lot of storytelling today from the, from the, over these two chapters, probably a little bit more than normal, but we'll be weaving in and out of these two major scenes from the the story of the life of Samson, the story of Samson, uh, with a few points of application as we go. But in the last like seven to ten minutes of our time, I'm going to give us three major takeaways from these two chapters that I personally just have I've been very challenged by that I think will be powerful. Uh, we'll be encouraged by them. I've been encouraged by them myself this week. But again, in our text, we have these two pretty big and defining moments in Samson's life. We've got his birth and his and a wed and his marriage. And of course, there's nothing normal about either one of them. Um, because right off the bat, in his birth story, we see that an angel of the Lord came to a lady who was who couldn't have any who couldn't have any babies, um, which was a major deal for them. You know, yes, there was a, there was terrible terrible sadness and grief that would come uh, from infertility. Um, just but there's also the fear of like who's going to take care of me when I get old. They didn't have retirement plans back then. No, their kids were their retirement plans. And here she is, just totally barren, and an angel comes and promises her that she will have a baby. And as we'll see a few weeks in the book of Luke, this should draw us to our to the attention to what's coming with the birth of Jesus with the angels coming to announce that a deliverer is coming. And again, nothing normal about this. Like me and my wife, we just had a baby three and a half weeks ago. And you know, an angel did not come and announce the birth to us. No, we found out through a pregnancy test. But then when you look at the angel says to her about Samson, look at her son, look what it says about her son in verse four and five. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So an angel says to her, no alcohol and no unclean food for mama. Uh, and, and the same will be for your baby. And oh yeah, no haircuts from him either. Um, they want that. Let's let the hair be long and flowing, right? And the angel of the Lord came to her and gave her the instructions that her son Samson would hold to the Nazarite vow. And this vow, the Nazarite vow, this would have been a voluntary vow traditionally where they drank no alcohol and had no unclean foods and they didn't shave their heads. Uh, Maybe we could say, just to say it a different way, uh, maybe we could say no beer, no bacon, and no barbers. And the reason they typically uh, did these vows 
was to prepare themselves for what's coming. It was a way to set themselves apart. And so a typical Nazarite vow would have been voluntary. It would have been used uh, maybe for how we think of fasting today. It kind of prepares our heart for the Lord. It keeps our focus on the Lord. But for Samson and his mom, this vow was not voluntary. No, it was a command from the Lord for his entire life. And then as the story continues, kind of going through chapter 13, as I tell the story, she goes back and tells her husband about this vow. And she's like, you'll never believe what happened to me. This man of God came and talked to me. He looked awesome, it says. I don't know where he's from. I don't know his name. But he told me about our son and to keep this vow. And her husband's like, well, I don't know about this. Let me pray about it. He prays for the angel to come to both of them. Well, God heard his prayer. So the angel went back to his wife, and of course he's not there. Uh, and so she runs to get her husband. She runs back with her, he runs back uh, with her, and he's like, are you the guy? And the angel's like, yes, yes, I am. And then he asks, what are you supposed to do with our son? And the angel's like, well, I already told your wife, just listen to your wife. And again, uh, says to him, says to, to both of them, no beer, no bacon, and no barbers in a summarized way. And Manoah, the husband, is like, can I get a goat for you? And the angel says back, I don't want your goat, but you can give it to the Lord as an offering. And then he looks at the angel, the husband does, and says, oh, yeah, my wife didn't catch your name. I'll get it. And he asks the angel, and the angel says in verse 18 of chapter 13, why are you asking for my name, seeing it is wonderful? Which, to translate that, the commentators will often say, he's saying, his name is too wonderful to comprehend. And so he doesn't tell the name. So they take the goat with some grain. They place it on a rock and sacrifice the goat to the Lord. The flame goes upward to heaven. Uh, The angel of the Lord goes up with the flame, up to heaven. And then they fall, the parents, the mom and the dad, they fall on their faces to the ground. They're just in total awe knowing that they had seen the angel of the Lord. And they never saw the angel again after that. And they're they're in so much awe that they're like, we have to go through with this vow now. Like they knew that it was true. And then Samson was born at the end of chapter 13. We, say, we see that he grew up in the Lord's favor. Uh, he was, the Lord blessed him. Uh, we, and then at the end of chapter 13 of the miraculous birth, it says the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Meaning God's hand was on Samson's life. And I don't know about you, but when I read this, I can't help but think there is something special about this guy, Samson. God's hand is on his life. Miracles are happening around him. Angels are announcing his birth. But as we'll see, as soon as we step into chapter 14, he's not as set apart as we'd like to think. No, Samson will very quickly fall short of his call. And we hear that and think, well, why all the angel talk? Like, why were the parents falling down in awe? Why was the Spirit of the Lord falling on him? And yes, we'll see God use him in spite of his sin and rebellion, but chapter 13 certainly makes it seem like this baby is going to be something incredible. Like, something different is about, something different is going to happen with Samson. Again, look, but I want you to look back at chapter, uh, at chapter 13, verse 5, and I want you to notice something about what the angel says. This is really important. This is what the whole verse. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. The sef- second half of verse 5 says he will begin to save Israel. And notice the angel never said he would fully save Israel, 
And as we'll see in the next few weeks, Samson, yes, he will eventually die. And Israel, they will get worse again, as we'll see. But here in the middle of chapter 13, at the birth story of Samson, but God is beginning something with Samson that will ultimately finish with Jesus. Samson will begin to save Israel, but Jesus, he will finish the job. Samson's birth story points us to the Christmas story, where an angel of the Lord, in, in, let the Christmas story, appears to Mary and says in the book of Matthew that she will have a son and he will save them from their sins. And then we see in the book of Luke, we see more details that an angel of the Lord said to Mary that Jesus, his kingdom, it will have no end. And just like Samson's mom was considered barren, we see the same thing with Elizabeth in the book of Luke, who an angel of the Lord came to her and spoke to her also about how she would have a son named John the Baptist who would point people to Jesus, who would also would not drink wine or strong drink from his mother's womb, just like Samson and his mom. Different vow, but very similar. Again, the birth of Samson points us to the birth of Jesus. Maybe we could say what Samson began in Judges, Jesus finished at the cross. Except when Jesus came onto the scene and grew up, he wasn't like Samson. No, Jesus lived his entire life without sin and without rebellion and without recklessness. Jesus came to live the life that Samson will soon show us that he could not live. And Jesus didn't come, come as a great military leader like prideful Samson, which is how they thought their Savior would be. No, he came, Jesus came with humility and gentleness. He came to bring peace, not war. Again, in the first half of our time, this miraculous birth of Samson is pointing us and shouting at us to look forward to the miraculous birth of Jesus, which is what we're going to do in a few weeks. And so as we kind of go through the story of Samson, yes, we can be impressed with Samson and how God worked through him, but everything that is impressive about Samson should move us to be in greater awe of Jesus. The birth of Samson shows us an awesome angel and an awe-inspiring birth. And the parents at the end, even though they had a very difficult vow to obey and to uphold, not something that the dad was particularly excited about, they were both moved towards obedience because they were in awe of what they had witnessed. New City, everything about chapter 13 at the birth screams awe. And so one question of application I just have in our first scene here is, uh, are you in awe of Jesus? You know, I mentioned this last week, but when we're in awe of God, we're moved to obedience, just like we see with Samson's parents. But when we lack awe and we worship, uh, and we lack worship and instead worship other things over God, disobedience and rebellion becomes the easiest next step. That's, we see this happen over and over again in the book of Judges. And here at the beginning of chapter 13, we saw that Israel, they were numb, they were immunized to the ways of the Philistines, and they didn't repent at all. No, they're numb to their rebellion, and they were just apathetic at best. And so just ask, has Jesus become just commonplace in your life? You know he's there, you know it, you believe it, you know all, maybe you know all the right answers, but yet... Maybe we've just lost all, maybe a bit apathetic, maybe not really rejecting Jesus, but also not really in awe of Jesus. 
And listen, I get it. We all go through seasons like this. This is the, the Christian life is not a life of constant highs. No, our days are not al- always like a constant act of awe and worship all day long. No, the Christian life is a life of hardship and suffering and trials. We have hard moments in our days, but yet even in those hardships and dry seasons and moments of just forgetfulness that we go in our day as we have our days, we must draw our eyes to Jesus and be in awe of his goodness again. Like we must find regular ways and reminders to be moved to all again and again and again, over and over again. Like when we celebrate baptisms last week, like those stories of transformation, they move us to all. When we gather regularly in worship and in prayer and we sit week after week under the teaching of God's word with the corporate body, one of the many hopes is it would hopefully, just in a small way, that we'd be moved to all after just our weeks of just highs and lows. When we gather in community throughout the week in our city groups and open the word and share life and share faith with those around us and just and when we daily get into the word of God, hopefully these things are moving us to all. And no, not every time, not all the time, but my point is it is very easy for our hearts to grow numb and apathetic about the ways of God. And the result, as we've seen in Judges, is disobedience and rebellion. This happens over and over again. Y'all, we were created to be in awe We were created to be in awe of something. And so we must ask, what are we in awe over? Maybe today, is it a person? Is it our future, the weekend, our work, sports, is it a hobby? Or is it God? Is it Jesus? Church, may we be moved to awe yet again today because our God, he sent a rescuer to a broken and sinful world. He sent a rescuer for you and for me. Again, part one of the miraculous birth story shows us that what begins with Samson, it will ultimately be finished with Jesus. That's part one. But in the second half of our time today, we're going to look at the next major event of Samson's life. And it's after he grew up. It's his marriage. And it's a bit of a unique wedding. It's kind of a funny one, I think. Maybe not so funny, but I've titled this part two, The Ravenous Riddle. And hopefully this will make sense uh, as we keep going. The Ravenous Riddle out of chapter 14. And for whatever reason, this next chapter of Samson's life, it's one of my own personal favorites, uh, chapters in the Old Testament. And the reason is kind of twofold for why it's one of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament. The first initial reason why I would say this is because it's just a unique story. Like, I find it just intriguing and entertaining. It's a fun story just to read and to tell. I mean, really, the whole, the whole story of Samson, all four chapters, read a li- little bit like a movie thrill. But then secondly, the insights that we can learn from it, I just, I personally found to be really challenging and needed. And we'll see those that are, as we end our time. But again, the thrill of chapter 14 of Samson's life, y'all, it is a whirlwind. Get this, in chapter 14, Samson finds a wife, kills a lion with his bare hands, eats honey out of a raw carcass, comes up with a wild riddle to stump the town, ultimately leading him to kill 30 people around the city to pay off a bet. And it's a wild story. It's it's a full chapter. It's got a compelling storyline. But when we pull back the curtain to Samson's life, we'll see the true colors of his character. You know, as uh, Liam Neeson said in the movie Taken, I think we could say that Samson has a very particular set of skills. Maybe we could say he's got some competencies, like he's got some skills. But his character, as we'll see, it doesn't meet God's standard. 
And just like nothing was normal with his birth, nothing's going to be normal about his marriage. Look at chapter 14, starting in verse 1 to 3, as we kind of continue the story. Again, we've got a lot of story today. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our peoples that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my own eyes. You know, when we, when we read this story, that part of the story with our 21st, Americanized, uh, 21st century Americanized lens, we think, oh, how nice. Like he went on a trip. He found a girl he wants to marry and he goes home in like a typical Hallmark movie and he thinks his parents are just upset because he doesn't want to marry the girl next girl, girl, the girl next door that he's been dreaming about, that they've been dreaming about him marrying for years. And the son's like, mom and dad, uh, this is the girl I want to marry. Can we carry on and think this is no big deal? Like maybe this all seems pretty normal. But we have to realize at this point in time, marrying a Philistine girl was a major no-no. Like they were off limits. They were not supposed to intermarry with women from other cultures that specifically served other gods. Like we have to remember his parents were told by an angel of the Lord that he was to be set apart and holy, holding to the Nazarite vow from birth. He had a standard that he had to live up to. And so Samson, he knew this was against God's plan, but his heart and his passion, they wanted something, he wanted something very different. Like, there's no denying that Samson was a man full of passion and zeal. And his passion for this girl that was off limits because she served the Philistine gods, it was directing his life. We have to get that even still today, the Bible's clear to not, for, for Christians to not marry those who are unequally yoked. Like followers of Jesus shouldn't marry those that are not followers of Jesus. And here is Samson, a man that is set apart for the Lord, and we see his passion and his desire driving him to seek to marry a woman that did not serve the Lord. And his parents are trying to warn him and help him and giving him counsel to follow the Lord's ways, but what does he do? He says, Dad, no, go get her for me, for she's right in my own eyes. And notice he didn't say, right in the Lord's eyes. No, he said, she is right in my own eyes. In New City, those few words right there that Samson said to his dad that she is right in my own eyes, that was the beginning of his downfall. And us today, we must take warning that this same thing is true for us today. Every day, we're faced with the decision, whose do- desires are we gonna follow? The Lord's desires, the Lord's ways, or our own desires in our own ways? Are we gonna click on the site and go down the destructive rabbit hole, or are we gonna honor the Lord and fight for purity? Are we going to honor the Lord with our words and get words and give into our own desires and be mean and cruel and speak mean and cruel things that maybe tear down others? Or are we going to honor the Lord with how we spend our time, maybe how we spend our money? Are we going to give into the desires of our flesh and what seems to be good in our eyes and serve others with our time and our resources? Like, what are we going to do? New City, God has given us desires and passions and zeal, and it's for our good, and it can be used for the Lord's good, but like Samson, if it's not steered in the right direction to be used for the Lord, it absolutely and will be likely led, lead to our downfall. Samson could have listened to those around him. He could have listened to wise counsel, but he decided to ignore it and walk in his own eyes, in his own ways. And then I want you to notice something in verse four. It would be really easy to pass over this verse 
because it kind of brings <laughs> some complexities to this text. But look what it says. I just want to point it out. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. And he was spe- seeking an opportunity against the Philistines at the time for the Philistines ruled over Israel. Like this, seem, this verse seems a bit problematic and seems to kind of negate everything I just said. Because it then says, but all of that, it was from the Lord. And God, I mean, God's law says to not do what he, what he did, and he disobeyed God's law. And yes, he was walking in disobedience. But his motive was not to find a marriage that honors the Lord, but rather his motive was to go against the Philistines, which that motive was from the Lord because they opposed God. And so, yes, he had these mixed motives here, but even in spite of his disobedience to one of his motives, God still used what he meant for evil to be used for good. In New City, God has been doing this since the beginning of the Bible. He takes that which is evil and, and sin, and he turns it around and he uses it for good which shows us that God is the redeemer of brokenness in all situations, even in our disobedience. We see this with Joseph in Genesis, and we also see it with the evil and the disobedience from everyone that nailed Jesus to the cross. And is this an excuse to sin? Absolutely not. Our motives should always be to walk walk in the Lord's ways. It doesn't mean, but it doesn't mean that God can't use our disobedience and sin and redeem it. Like this is what God does with all of us. God often uses our greatest acts of rebellion and sin in our life, redeems them, and he uses it to be some of our greatest places for ministry that God can use for his own good purposes. New City, this is just what God does. He takes pornography addictions, restores and heals them, and uses those same people to be warriors to fight against the same sin in the lives of others. God takes overspenders and makes them extravagantly generous. God takes selfish me monsters who are all about themselves, restores them, redeems them, and makes them radically selfless for the purposes of God. You see, this is what God does. God takes our greatest weaknesses, redeems them, and then he just uses it to show off God's power and strength. He used Samson's disobedience, turned it around, and he used it to go to war against the Philistines who oppose God. And look what happened next in verse 5. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came towards him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat, but he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. So what happened here? Well, in the strength of the Lord, showing off God's power through Samson, a lion comes roaring at him, and he shreds it to pieces pieces with his bare hands. Like, that seems pretty cool. But yet, what do we see happen? He doesn't tell his parents. No, he, he starts living in hiding and in deception. And notice there's a vineyard, a place, a Nazarite, uh, would not have been wise for him to be. He was surrounding himself in a place that would have potentially caused him to break that Nazarite vow and as readers who know the law and the requirements, this is, this is kind of when the music of the story starts to kind of change because we see, we know that he's walking into temptation and danger here. And then look what happens in verse seven. Then he went down and talked with the woman and she was right in Samson's eyes. Yet again, the background music is telling us this is not wise. He's in trouble. She was right, not in the Lord's eyes, but in his own eyes. And then cue his next act of disobedience to the vow. Again, he's not living out in the open, but he's living in hiding. Look what he does in verse 8. After some days, 
He returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate, but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Remember the vow said, don't eat anything, uh, anything unclean. And I don't know about you, but eating honey out of a dead lion doesn't seem very sanitary. And so his disobedience here, it doesn't just break his own vow. He breaks his parents' vow also. Because at this point, uh, and at this point, his rebellion here is not just affecting him, but it's also those around him. And then as the story continues, they throw a big party for the Philistines. They throw him a wedding and a vineyard, which would have included things that were off limits to his vow, things like wine and these other unclean foods because he was, uh, he was with the Philistines and they had all those things. And then he gets this bright idea. I find it super interesting as he's just kind of swelling with pride because he's just killed a lion with his bare hands. And he's kind of got this party game. Going, he's got every, he gives everyone a riddle at his wedding. And he says, if, if y'all can't uh, get the riddle, I'll get all 30 of you new clothes, which he did not have those clothes. Um, so he was kind of gambling here on his pride. And what, what was that riddle? We'll look at verse 14, chapter 14. He said to them, out of the eater came something to, something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. But as readers here, we know the story, we know the riddle, but as, as Samson was conf- he was confident, they'd never guess it. His pride here is just kind of swelling. His head is just getting bigger and bigger. So they had seven days to solve the riddle, and in three days, he's doing pretty well, but these guys uh, that were kind of partying with him at the wedding, they went to, to his wife, um, th- who they grew up with, and all, they were there with all the Philistines at the same time, and they talked to his wife, and they try to get her to pry the answers out of Samson. And she goes to Samson, and she's like, oh, you don't love me. You hate me. And she cries over it for, for, seven, for, for, for seven days. And on the seventh day, Samson finally gave in, and he tells her the answer. And then she goes and tells all the people. And they come to him with the answer in the second half of verse 18 saying, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle, which I found to be an interesting uh, response. Basically saying, um, you came snooping around uh, and played the game the wrong way, which basically is what the Philistines did. They didn't play fair. Um, they, They didn't have a moral compass, so to speak. And Samson, he got mad because he lost his moral compass, and they were using immorality to fight immorality. They fought evil with evil. And look what, look what it says in verse 19. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. So the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went and struck down the Philistines. Again, God used his disobedience to destroy those who opposed God. But he didn't have the 30 garments that he, he, he kind of wagered with, the bet that he made, so to speak. And he went and killed these people to go and get those clothes to pay off his, his bet. And then he went kind of pouting back to his dad's house in anger and frustration, and then he lost his wife in the process. So Samson's pride, his recklessness, his disobedience, and his hidden life, they were just put on full display. 
And yet, in God's infinite wisdom, he still used Samson's disobedience to bring about his purposes of defeating those that oppose God. And so that's scene two of the four-part story of Samson. We'll finish the other two scenes next week. Again, scene one, God set Samson apart through a miraculous birth. And scene two, we just saw Samson's character flaws uh, are put on full display through that ravenous riddle. All the while, God's still working in the backdrop to bring about his purposes to begin to save Israel from the Philistines. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves in like this last seven to ten minutes of our time, like what do we take away from this story? Again, our one big idea, our main idea over these two chapters is God set apart and used sinful Samson for his purposes. And I think we've seen that through this story loud and clear. But with this, I want to give us three quick takeaways about this story that I think we can learn from. And the first is Pastor Tim Keller pointed out in his commentary. Number one, the fruits of the Spirit are just as important as the gifts of the Spirit. Over and over again. We see that the Spirit of God rushed upon Samson. God was working through him and in him, giving Samson remarkable gifts of strength and power, killing a lion with his bare hands in the fight against those who opposed God, all things from the Lord. And so, yes, the Spirit of God gave him these gifts to be used for his purposes, but he clearly lacked the fruits of the Spirit of peace and self-control and lacked patience and gentleness. And I can't help but think of how easy it is for us today, especially those in leadership, to have great gifts of leadership and wisdom and teaching and preaching and counseling, maybe even uh, prophetic or evangelistic gifts, showing wisdom and discernment. All the gifts that Paul talks about in the New Testament that are to be gifts for the church, to build up the body of Christ. But yet how easy is it for those same people who display incredible gifts to also lack the fruits of the Spirit, of love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. To say all of this another way, our character matters just as much, if not more, than our competency. I can't tell you how heartbreaking it is as a pastor to see other pastors who can just preach the paint off the walls, just incredibly gifted and talented people, but yet their private lives just don't match up. And you better believe I'm up here giving, giving a public warning in front of you to myself. Not because I think I have some special gift, but because I know my private life and my own walk with Jesus is way more important than my public life. And I'm very, I'm very aware and maybe a bit terrified, I hope in a good way, a good fear of the dangerous and destructive effects that my own sin can have on our church. Like I wholeheartedly believe me and our elders, our own personal holiness and our own walk with Jesus and our own devotion to the Lord is the single greatest gift we can give to our church. Which is why we spend about half of our time in our elders meetings uh, just checking in and trying to pour into each other and love one another and praying for one another. And we saw the spirit of the Lord was upon Samson, just an awe-inspiring and a gifted man with incredible strength and power and yet behind closed doors, he was living in hiding. He was living with pride and recklessness. And time and time again, he refused to listen to the people around him and he decided to live according to his own desires instead of the Lord's desires. We say this over and over again, that our desire and calling as a church is to raise up godly men and women to be sent out all over the world as missionaries and church planters and to raise up kingdom influencers here in the Tampa Bay area and to reach the campus and to reach our communities for Jesus. But we better believe as we do that, we're gonna press hard and to see the character and holiness of our people flourish. 
Like this is exactly why we have city groups and why we don't just have like large Bible studies, which are really good and helpful. And I think they're very beneficial, but we intentionally break into our, our groups into smaller discipleship groups of three to five people so that we can take time and focus on the holiness of our lives. I mean, having larger Bible studies, uh, it would probably be way more effective and easier to assimilate more people. Um, yes, like, it's, like that's, typically, that's a typical church growth strategy. But we are absolutely willing to throw church growth strategy that will grow a big church out the window for the sake of raising up holy men and women of the Lord that can stand firm in the face of resistance. There's so much more to say here about all that we need to, like all that we just talked about, but we need to keep moving to take, uh, so that's takeaway number one. The fruits of the Spirit are not just, are just as important, if not more, than the gifts of the Spirit. And then in light of that same exact truth, we can also celebrate and proclaim that number two, God's grace is greater than our sin. Samson was reckless and prideful and living a hidden life, but yet in spite of that, God still used him. And that's not to say his sin is excused and to ignore it. We're not saying that at all, but it is to say uh, at the cross, his sin is forgiven. And why? Because God is a gracious God that uses broken and sinful people for his design purpose, divine purposes. And there's not a single person on this planet that is free from sin, that always walks perfectly in the spirit. Like our standard is perfect holiness, but at the cross, Jesus meets the standard for us. At the cross, Jesus took our sin and gave us his holiness. And through the power of the resurrection, he infused us with his spirit. And we're not just, to, not just to be told just to be a better person and follow all the rules better. No, but over a lifetime, his spirit is not just upon us for specific tasks like we see with Samson. No, but his spirit dwells within us to transform us into his image. Like the Christian life is a life that struggles with sin and disobedience but it's also a life that is full of forgiveness and grace and mercy and the power to change and transform a life. Like each and every day we wake up with a new and fresh start that it's not in our own strength, but it's in the Lord's strength. Yes, Samson was a strong man on the outside, but his inner life was in shambles. And when Jesus came down to earth, he didn't come to first change our outer life, uh, but to first change our inner life that then flows outward to our outer life. This is the gospel that we celebrate every single week, every single day. We can't do it, but Jesus did it for us. We don't need Samson's outer strength. No, we need Jesus's transformational strength for our hearts. We don't need to be like Samson. No, we need to be like Jesus. Yes, Samson began to save Israel from the Philistines just like God promised that they would do, but it was incomplete. It wasn't good enough. He didn't finish the task. Which leads us to say, as our last and final point today, as we end our time, New City number three, we need a better Savior. We don't need another Samson. No, we are in desperate need of Jesus. We're in desperate need of a Savior that can transform us from the inside out, that can save us not just from the outside world, but that can save us from us, that can save us from our own sin and rebellion. Listen, Samson's biggest problem wasn't the Philistines. No, Samson's biggest problem was himself. Samson was the savior for Israel, but Samson needed saving himself. New City, today we can celebrate that God has come to rescue us and to be with us and to also transform us. And listen, if you've never given your life to Jesus, I pray that today would be the day that you surrender all of your strength to him and that you would, uh, that your will, in all of your will to him and say, Jesus, just take my life again today. 
Like this is for all of us here, no matter where you are, I pray that we would surrender all of our life, every bit of it to the Lord again. Do we get saved again? No. But every day we are called to re-surrender our life again and again and again. Today, may we just be moved to awe and worship just yet again. We're not in all of ourselves. We're not in all of what we can do, but just be moved in all of the goodness of Jesus. Be moved into the all of his mercy and grace and goodness. New City, our call today is to fully surrender our entire life again today. To worship the Lord and just be in all of his goodness. Would you pray with me? God, we don't need Samson's strength We need your strength. God, we don't need his power. We need your power. God, would your spirit come into our hearts and lives again today, one more time today? We just totally surrender our entire life again. Day after day, would you just totally renew us and restore us with with a new fresh start? That's the gospel. Jesus came to take our sin. And God, would we today, would we just live into that, live into the freedom that's found on the cross? God, I don't know how you're working today. I don't know how you're moving into the hearts of our people. But my heart and my prayer today is that we would just lay everything down at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, take all of it. And we just move to worship the Lord in gladness and joy. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.